Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. And again, the goal is for the most part that we're going to be looking at these chapter by chapter. Um, and even, even with the time that we have, you know, we'll, we'll cover as much as we can. But if we break up the chapters more than that, they really, we miss part of the episode. It'd be like, you know, Joy hates it when we're in the middle of an episode and say, I'm too tired, I got to go to bed. You know, and then basically you've got to kind of start back and what was going on with the episode before? And so you sort of, you break the middle of the episode, you lose some of the flow. And so we're going we're gonna to do the best we can to follow in sort of chapter by chapter with some exceptions. Some of the chapters really have some different sections. But tonight we're looking at chapter six. And uh, last time we saw uh, the lamb, only the lamb, who is Christ, lamb with a capital L, uh, was able to open the scroll. That was in chapter five, right? And so now we're going to look at the lamb opening the seven seals. So let's go ahead and look at these seals and see what they contain. Let's read Revelation chapter 6, and I'll read it in its entirety. And I, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, as I usually have. Some people have asked me that. Um, other, other translations would probably be, you know, follow pretty well, but I am reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version, which is uh, it's kind of the standard I've used now for six or seven years. But thank God, there are plenty of good translations out there. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people would slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard this, the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the, living, uh, of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its, rider, uh, its rider's name was Death, and, ha and Hades followed him. So there's two there. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts on the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw another, or I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain by the word, uh, for the word of God and for the witnesses they had borne. The witness they had borne, excuse me. Verse 10. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth and the, as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale, the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath 
of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come, and who can stand? So if you didn't feel like we were in the book of Revelation yet, now you do, don't you? And there's some intense stuff that we're seeing here. Um, the, the Lamb here in verse 1 begins by opening the first of these seven seals. And so no, there's no uh, you know, coincidence here. Of course, the Lamb is the only one who can open the scroll. Now the Lamb is revealing here, opening these seals. In verse 2, we sort of enter, uh, enters the, the white horse and its rider. Each of these horses, we're going to look at four initially, they each have a rider with them. The horse, of course, being the vehicle, the rider, the one who's ultimately controlling here. But the horses... Each of them are going to have an own, their own significance in terms of color and so on. If the, if the scroll and the seals were enough, again, we're, this is some really apocalyptic stuff. These, these mysterious riders, and often if you've seen the book of Revelation depicted in art, a lot of times it's the horsemen, right? We often see that at my, at my seminary there were these, these really fantastic paintings that someone had done and donated to the seminary of, of these horsemen. What, what is the horse, in this first one, verse 2, what's the rider's mission? What did he come to do? Came to conquer. And if we have time, we're going to come back to this. And really, depending on how much time, we'll come back and try to explore each of these horsemen. But who is this or uh, riding this, this horse? And, and what does it mean that he's coming to conquer? Is that good or bad and so on? Well, well, again, if we have time, we'll come back. But just note initially at this point that this, this rider came to conquer, riding the white horse. In verses 3 and 4, there's another seal opened. And here John sees the red horse. If you note, each time sort of the seal is opened and a different one of the living creatures, the first, the second, the third, and fourth, is sort of calling to the horse, come. Sort of the horse and the rider are coming, so he has the authority to sort of usher in this next stage that's being uh, un, uh, revealed to us, to, to John, and ultimately to us. Now this rider is different. He has a sword. Right? A great sword, a large sword. What's his mission? In verse 4, this rider. To take peace, right? He's permitted to take away the earth's peace, to, to, to remove it. That word permitted is really important here. It always comes, there's some passive, there's other, some person permitting, right? And so, so who is doing the permitting here? The Lord, right. And so, so these, these things, these creatures we're seeing, these horses that are being revealed, are, are not sort of in their own authority, right? They have a delegated authority given to them, but, but there is a certain amount of power that is given to them in this moment. And so, so not only is, is there permission here, but second, we're, we're reminded here in this sense of, again, sort of, it's like God taking his hand back through these, these agents. God almost always works through agents, you know, beings, people. Um, God, of course, can just sort of speak and things will happen. Very often he works through someone, through the Assyrians, through the Babylonians, through the Israelites. So here working in this other way. And so, but God, through these, these agents, he is ultimately removing the, the peace that has, that has um, been settled over the of human civilization. It's a reminder of what civilization would do to itself if God would remove his hand of protection. Now, do we see violence and chaos on the earth? Of course we do, but they're the exception. That's why we note it in the news. So there's, like, for instance, right now, Ethiopia is on the verge of a civil war. Maybe some of you have seen that. It's been a very stable country in Africa for generations relative to the region. 
They're on the brink of civil war, but, but it's an exception, right? When Syria falls apart, we notice that, oh, that's, that's strange, that's awful. When there's a civil war in, in, the, in Central America, it's when we notice that. So, so war happens, but there is still a sense in which it's restrained by God. There, there's a sort of restraining so that it doesn't completely unravel into anarchy and violence. But here, God is going to remove some of that restraining and, and the peace that has reigned, the relative peace. Now, if you, if you live in certain parts of the world, you don't feel like you're in peace, but relatively, there has been a restraining of evil even during this evil period, what Christ often called this, this evil time. We get to verse 5, and there's a third seal, right? And that horse is the black horse that has ultimately come. Again, come, one of the living creatures calls, and the horse rides. Uh, the rider here carries a, a pair of scales, and at first you might think, oh, is that like judgment, like the scales of judgment? Well, no, it doesn't seem to be judgment. It seemed to be scales that were used for the buying of food and goods here. And it's in short supply. So, so basically, is it, I mean, we don't need to know all the details, but the idea is with this amount of denarius, basically a whole day's wage just for a little flour. So food is becoming very expensive. They can't even get the basic necessities. There's not enough to go around. Things are extremely high. Uh, on the side, you'll, you'll note that uh, it, he says, uh, uh, let's see, it's just too good to pass up in verse 6. And do not harm, we'll just go back a little bit, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. So in other words, extremely expensive. Imagine spending 150 bucks on a loaf of bread. And, uh, but ultimately here he says um, in verse uh, verse. Seven, right, six, and do not harm the oil and the wine. Why in the world would he say that? Well, there's a couple different possibilities here, and this is often the case in Revelation. It could be that saying that not all of the, the goods of life are interrupted, only the most essential, or it could be describing, some commentators think, uh, and maybe it's more likely that they're describing that the rich, the oil was something that was very valued for cooking. They used it for medicine. They used it for a ton of different stuff. Um, and then wine. Wine was used by all people, but poor people had to water their wine down. They didn't have enough wine for the family, so they would water it down. It was sort of a, a really watered-down wine. Rich people could drink it straight. Um, and they, they drank wine with every meal, and it was just part of living in the ancient Near East. It was not as strong an alcoholic of a drink as, as wine usually is today, but it was alcoholic. But it could be that saying that basically the rich people, their wine and their oil, it's going to be fine. The rich are going to continue on, but for the rest of society, they're going to suffer more. It could be that's what it's getting at. Just not quite clear. As we get down to verses 7 and 8, the fourth seal is revealed. This is our last horse, a pale horse. Interesting. So we had white, we had bright red, we had black, and now a, a pale, a pale horse. This is the only rider uh, that's given a, a name, right? He's called Death. And then there's one with him, sort of almost like a companion. It seems uh, that the other, and it's Hades. The, the pl Hades is the place of death or, or the underworld uh, in, in the Jewish mind. And so these two are sort of working together. And again here, they're given authority, but it is that same sort of delegated authority that we saw with the others. Here they're given the authority to actually shed blood. So the other one's almost passive. It's, um, it's sort of an idea of we're going to remove peace and just sort of let civilization in, and you sort of crumble in on itself, but now it's actually actively bringing violence and bloodshed, the taking of life. 
Again, this is the moment where we kind of pause, where it's just, this is some pretty frightening stuff, huh? I mean, this is the sort of stuff that, again, we often think about with the book of Revelation, and rightly so. As we get to verses 9 through 11, the the fifth seal is really leading to a significant shift. So we saw the horses. We're kind of moving on from the riders and these horses. Um, I'd like to read it. Look back at verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Anytime you see those who dwell on the earth, that's referring to unbelievers. The book of Revelation often uses that language. When will you judge the unbelievers? Verse 11. Then they uh, were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. So just hang in there a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete were to be killed as they themselves had been. I can't get into all the, the discussions about interpretation. Sure, this is kind of, I'll take off my sweater if I need to, but um, there's several different ways that this could be interpreted, but I'll try to cover the main things and we can always come back. Um, these are clearly believers um, and very likely this is talking about the martyrs. I mean, that, that's the surface reading. This seems to be speaking about the martyrs of the faith. In every generation, there have always been martyrs of the faith. This is true going very close immediately, you know, after Pentecost, we see martyrs. Ultimately, we could see that Christ himself was a martyr, right? But we see Stephen, and we see, we see martyrs in the book of Acts. Um, and then this is going to be true throughout uh, the eons. But, Bob, you have, you have a question or thought? I see the face of that girl in Columbine. Yeah. I see his face. Yes. Yeah. I mean, we can, we can recount. Now, th- those are ones that really stick in our minds, right? Because that's the first time this happens in America in such a, such a frank way. Um, but you realize there have been more martyrs in the 20th, well, I was going to say the 20th century, which is true, but let's just say since 1900. There have been more martyrs in the last 120 years than there have been in all of church history before it combined. When we think about like the, the church fathers era and the first centuries, and there were a lot of martyrs, but there's been even more in the last 120 years, far more actually, when you crunch the numbers. And so these martyrs are calling out for vindication, and it's coming. That vindication is very soon coming, but he says, wait, just, just a little bit longer. Uh, they're given white robes. Uh, white represents purity, holiness. This is ultimately, they, they are redeemed with the blood of the lamb, washed with the blood of the lamb. Um, what, what is the delay? This is fascinating. What is the delay uh, in their, their call for justice? There's more to be killed. Isn't that interesting? We, we see this language a number of times in the Bible, and it's a reminder of a couple things. Number one, God is extremely patient. When, uh, going back here quite a bit, try not to chase this rabbit too far. In, in the book of Exodus, there, and this is throughout, you know, in the early chapters, or early uh, books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, even, even going back to Genesis. Of course, we see Abraham is going to go into the promised land, right? And ultimately, they're going to come in with the hand of judgment. Again, God's agents of judgment. God is going to bring in Israel. They're going to come in. They're going to the judge uh, the people of the land, the Canaanites. But God says, wait, wait, not yet. Because the iniquity of the Canaanites is not yet 
full. So in other words, it wasn't time for judgment yet. They had to wait until the time. So God ultimately is going to watch and say, now judgment is filled up, now I'll send in my people. And he did so. Well, here is another example. Ultimately, God's going to say, don't worry, vindication is coming, justice is coming, but there's more. There are more people who are going to shed blood. Ultimately, before I bring retributive justice here. More, likewise, will give their lives as martyrs. And again, as I said, um, there have been martyrs throughout church history. I mean, really, with every single era. Um, but the martyrs that we've seen in the last hundred years have just been impressive in places like China, uh, goodness, all over Africa. Uh, even just, it's like every month, there's another 20, 30 people that are martyred. Um, you think about all over the Middle East and different places, uh, even in South America. But even as Bob said, not, it's you know, not unheard of even here in the United States that people would lose their lives as witnesses. And, and when we think of that, I mean, this is something that should really sober us up. Um, the little inconveniences that we face for our faith, and we all do, don't we, right? We face small inconveniences, but really seem very trivial when we think about those who truly give their lives for the faith. Uh, there, there was a whole culture in the early church in the first four centuries, well, really before Constantine especially, so you could say the first three centuries of the church, um, a whole, they called it the cult of martyrs. There was just an assumption that some of us, like, say, for instance, a church of this size, they just kind of knew, some of us are going to give our lives for the faith. Um, hopefully not today, hopefully not, you know, within the next few months, but at some point we all are. Uh, and so they had to discuss how do we deal with it. And so that they had whole, like, things written on it. So you don't ever pursue it, but if it comes to you, you take it, and you don't run away. Uh, and if you do run away, then you need to repent, and you can be restored, but it was sin. And so they had, like, this whole network because... It was such a part of their lives. We don't know what that's like. Um, but these, these brothers and sisters did. And so if we're thinking about this as the end of the age, looking back, um, ultimately there, there would be martyrs in here from all different ethnicities, all different times, all different situations, men and women. Um, just an incredible thing. Many heroes of the faith. As we get to verses 12 through 15, an earthquake accompanies the sixth seal. And this is really where things begin to unravel. Um, the earth really begins to feel the upheaval at this point. And this will sort of bring an alarm unlike anything else that the earth has ever faced. Uh, we have faced tumult. Um, we can think about the flood uh, with Noah. We can think about a whole lot of things that the world has faced, plagues and things like that, but nothing like this. With all the tumult, I mean, and this is, a, this is a question I want to ask you, what is it that they're most afraid of? Look at verse 16. Is it the earthquake? Is it, is it the, the pestilence? You know, what is it they're most afraid of? They're most afraid of facing God. Judgment. And so there's, there's some revelation to us at this point that they know the world at this point, you know, will, there, there'll be enough of a revelation that they know not only is God coming, but we have offended God, and ultimately we're in trouble. The unregenerate, the unbelievers. It's not speaking of believers, it's speaking of those who are, those who dwell on the earth, the unbelievers. And so there's some awareness by this point that they know that the wrath of the Lamb is going to come down upon them, and it's too much for them to even handle. They, they want to commit suicide. You know, let, let the rocks of the mountain fall on anything but having to face God at this moment. They can't bear it. I'm reading a great book right now called Gentle and Lowly. Maybe it's Lowly and Gentle. It might be. 
but it's by Dane Ortland, uh, who uh, works with a, a publishing company, Crossway Publishing. His uh, father's a pastor, his brother's a pastor. Um, and he, he says this, and this is so, such something that really struck me even as, as I was reading this. I've been reading it sort of devotionally. He says that we're, we are bound to, uh, to strongly underestimate the mercy that is found in Christ to all those who will go to him. We are, we are bound to underestimate. God is more gracious than we can possibly imagine. Christ welcomes us who all who will come. We underestimate how gracious he is. But I think, and this is, this is Dane Ortland, he says, but even more forcefully, we underestimate the wrath that will fall on those who reject him. So God stands with open arms. Christ stands as all who will come, come. And yet those who reject, those who spit in the face of God, they will one day have to face him, and they will. Often, um, I use this when I'm witnessing someone. I was witnessing someone recently, I was able to fill up a woman's gas tank and was witnessing to her. And I often say that, you know, you really, you know, I, I often will say something to the effect of, you know, I believe that all of us are going to have to stand before God someday and give account for ourselves. And the reason I start with that is because it, it, it's sort of a little jarring, but it's the truth. And then I want to give them the good news, but no one needs to because Christ has paid our debt and Christ welcomes all who will come to him and I unfold the good news. But there's a sense in which we, we need to remember that Unbelievers, those who are without Christ, will face his wrath. There's none who will sort of be forgotten. Oh, yeah, but they were a good person. No, there is none. No one can be good enough. Only Christ was good enough. And so there's sort of this fear that that, um, ultimately I think that we should rightly feel here for the unbeliever. Uh, The revelation of the first six seals is, is a word to believers that these things war, Famine, death, persecution, all of these things will precede Christ's return. So from the time that Christ ascended to the Christ, the time that he will return, we, we can expect these things. And so, so we're, we're not dismayed, we're not shocked when we hear of another war or rumors of war, as the scriptures say. By the way, Matthew describes really effectively the same scene. You can go read Matthew 24. It is really close parallel to this. There's no doubt that John would have been aware of it. So you might go and read John 24, which is really illuminating these, these same things. But as we think about that, the fact that we, we expect pestilence, we, have, uh, we expect wars, um, we should not be dismayed, but rather should see these as the signs of the times that they truly are. So when we see these things, yes, we should pray, yes, we should call out to God, and yet as we call out, we should also say, come, Lord Jesus, come. By the way, where's the seventh seal? We've only got six. Where's number seven? Did John forget? It's interesting what he does here, this sort of this literary piece. He stops it at the end of chapter six with the sixth seal, and then he goes in chapter seven to the 144,000. We'll see that next week, God willing. And then seventh seal's in chapter eight. So he's sort of he's purposely putting this here. Um, sometimes movies will do that, right? A good storyteller will sort of pause and sort of flash back and do something else and then ultimately return. And so John here is ultimately inserting chapter 7, which is significant. Why would he put chapter 7 here? What, what is chapter 7 to us? Of course, he didn't have chapters or verses. Um, but it's chapter 8 where he's going to return to the seventh seal. So God willing, we'll get there in a couple of weeks. Uh, we've got a couple minutes. Any concluding thoughts, questions? There's a lot that's here. The, again, there's, there's several different things we could look at in terms of 
fine points of interpretation, but the big picture is quite clear. These are the things that we'll, we can expect and we'll face before the Lord's return. Um, and yet he holds the world in his hand. holds time in his hand. He holds judgment in his hands. Um, we think of the urgency to, the, to those who dwell on the earth, to the unbelievers. Um, but we think about the vindication that will come for the Lord's people. And heaven forbid that any of us would ever face uh, violence for our faith. But if we do, we know the vindication is coming. Um, and so there's great hope in that. Yeah, Joy. The rapture? Literal. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't think the horse, that's a great question. I don't think they're to be taken literally. This is, this is really like standard apocalyptic language. Um, again, it, it, think of the horse as almost like a, it was a, it was a, a um, not a, just a weapon, it was a tool of war. And so it was, you know, of course to us, it might look different today. It might be a tank, you know, um, but it, it was, it, so it's, it's, in other words, it's one who is, is, is bringing war. And so to be literal, no, I don't think so. Um, could it be? Yeah, sure. Um, but, I, but when we get into apocalyptic literature, there's just so much here that's going to be symbolic. Anything with numbers, with animals, our first impulse would be to say, what is this symbolizing? Some of them are to be taken literally. Um, I, for instance, I think when we get to the end, which this goes back to who was, who's riding that white horse, um, we see Christ riding a white horse at the end of Revelation. And he's coming in, a sword proceeds from his mouth, and so on and so forth. Could some of that be literal? Maybe. Um, in fact, I, you know, often I've seen it depicted that way, and it's quite powerful. But, but at the end of the day, no, I think it's communicating something. It's uh, the, the horse is his means of transportation. Um, I think, for instance, when we're looking at some of these things, I think we're talking about demonic forces. Um, and, and we see Satan, for instance, is allowed certain things to do destruction. And so I think we're talking about spiritual forces. Yeah, good question. Anybody else? Anybody ever seen a red horse? No. Okay. Yeah, I think these things are symbolic. Yeah. Well, let's, let's say a word of prayer. And we've got a deacon's meeting this evening. And I'll say God bless you. Thank you, Lord, for... Um, for allowing us to study your word tonight. And ultimately, Lord, I, I pray, God, that you would help us to understand and to, to take these things to heart. Um, Lord, that, Lord, we know that you are coming. You will return. We know, Lord, that uh, we will face war and pestilence and these sort of things, and yet we know that you will preserve your people through it. We thank you, God, for your grace, your mercy. And Lord, we do cry out, oh, Lord, that you would return. Lord, that you would bring justice. Lord, that you will have mercy on your people. And, oh, God, that we would bring this is a warning even to those who dwell upon the earth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.